Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Panadol. Panadol made in Ireland. Contains paracetamol. Always read the label and leaflet. Good morning. It's just over a week since an explosion at the petrol station in Chrysler took the lives of ten people. With the consent of the families, on Gardaí Corner can confirm the identities of the deceased as follows. James O'Flaherty, 48 years. Jessica Gallagher, 24 years. Martin McGill, 49 years. Catherine O'Donnell, 39 years. And her son, James Monaghan, 13 years. Hugh Kelly, 59 years. Martina Martin, 49 years. Robert Garway, 50 years. And his daughter, Shauna Flanagan Garway, 5 years. And Leona Harper, 14 years of age. A yeshde Gorevanamica Dealish Gulair. very moving opening to Monday's live line. And on Sunday with Miriam, Quisla Parish Priest for the John Joe Duffy. It's extremely difficult. The scale of this is, 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 is enormous for us. And ten people, ten people dead. And uh, the, um, the, um, those that are injured, we're praying very much for them. And I stood with members of the Local community members of the emergency and rescue services, as as people were being brought out, uh, I, I think what was most difficult was there also praying with the families and families coming to 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 identify at the very beginning, uh, people who were taken out and stand praying with 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 parents and others uh, who didn't know what was happening and didn't know if a loved one was inside or not. And uh, as the search went through the night and just standing there and come here, there was a lot of hugging, there was a lot of tears and the empathy shown by 
by the emergency services and by the Gardaí and by members of the council fire services and all who were involved in the operation. Um, and you could see in people's eyes just that empathy and that sadness. And they they said to me that they hadn't hadn't seen anything as bad as the, uh, as this, and it was just harrowing. Something that was very moving uh, when each when each. A uh, person was brought out of the building. Uh, the silence that was there, and it was something that I have never experienced before, and I have been at accidents and so on, but there was just a silence, and, um, yeah. For the John Joe Duffy with Miriam. John Cook reported from Creasla across a number of programmes. On Monday into the Clare Byrne show, he brought us the words of local man Brian Dolan. We're a small, very small community. I say I'm in business. People ask you where you're from. You're from Creasla. Where's that? You know, it's half an hour west of Letterkenny. Nobody knows Creasla. Maybe the cutting the corner in Creasla or Bridie Gallagher or maybe the viaduct accident we had out the road 97 years ago, I think it was, before Friday. I think most people in Ireland would never have known where Creasla was. We will get through it, but, I mean, Chrysler will never, ever, ever be the same for anybody here. And it was perhaps the normality of popping into the shop to get milk or biscuits or use the ATM, the everydayness of it all, that resonated with so many people. A reminder to us that life can change so very quickly. For the This Week programme, Una Kelly brought us these voices. Somber. Shock. Shock. Disbelief. Disbelief. It's, yeah. it's what people go through when they're suffering from grief, you know. First of all, it's shock, it's disbelief, and I suppose the anger then comes out as well, you know. And there go I, but for the grace and of God. This is the thing. Could have been any of us going into the shop on Friday. What did it mean to see the, the rescue effort and support that's been shown within the community? I'd say it meant a lot. I mean, that, that, that support is there. And I think people haven't realised very much yet, and it's just going to take time to find people's feet. It's when the dust settles, and people will only realise the loss and, 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 and what's happened at that stage. And when the cameras and when the yourselves are gone, that's when the real recovery starts. One month, six months, a year down the line. And it's, it's just the people whose families have been affected, the rescuers who will suffer from post-traumatic stress. It's, it's all out there. And it is a small area. And a lot of support will be needed, absolutely. And all week long, across all programmes, again and again, tributes were paid to the tireless work of the emergency services who came to the scene. And in Creasla, we witnessed the solidarity and strength of a community coming together in the face of an almost unspeakable loss. On Drive Time, former President Mary McAleese spoke to Sarah. Isn't that really one of the most remarkable characteristics of what happened in the wake of that dreadful explosion, that awful amputation of life, was the... The, the people who rushed to the scene and put themselves in harm's way in order to help, in order to try and re- resolve 
the best they could that unimaginable scene like an Armageddon on their doorstep. Um, you know, putting behind them and, and ignoring the questions of any pain and suffering of their own, um, trying just simply to help. And we, actually, you know what? I, I, you look at that and you think, these were people who were going about their everyday lives. They didn't. They didn't expect to have to be cast in a hero. You know, to be tested. Mm-hmm. Their heroism and their courage to be tested. You know, on that day, they were going about their everyday lives. But but they were tested, and in the way that they were tested, they shone. Um, and I think maybe they brought a chink of light into the darkness that envelops Chrysler today. I mean, it it's, it incarcerates so many people almost like a prison cell now that grief but on the other hand maybe in the goodness and the kindness and the decency and the courage that's shown all around you know from the from those who were on the scene immediately to all the front you know all those frontline personnel to all the pastors to the neighbors to the people who have been um you know bringing the helping even with food um over the last mm. few days to keep people going um that we just hope we just live in hope that that brings a kind of a chink of light into this desperate darkness that envelops the whole country because it's not it's a darkness that is beyond darkness in Kriesla, but actually it's everywhere you know it's yeah. we all see that cloud of darkness and maybe just maybe in all that goodness that also was there, um, we see the measure of the greatness of the gift that was those 10 people and those who are in hospital, the greatness of the gift they are to, to their families and to all of us, and the greatness of the gift that is just simply human decency. From Drive Time. Throughout the week, family and friends of those who had died gathered to lay to rest their loved ones people of all ages and at all different stages in their lives. Twelve-year-old Hamish O'Flaherty remembered his father James, who had died in the explosion, and his young words reflecting perhaps not just his own loss, but also that of the other families, now bereft and in pain. And it was a reminder to us all as to how fragile our lives are and how precious. Um, hello, I'm grateful for all the people who have come here today. Um, I'd just like to say a few words about my dad. He was, he was a great man. He worked very hard and very long each day, whether it was around the house or at work. He had no shame, which I think is a great thing to not have. Um, he wore a jacket with a huge paint stain on the side of it everywhere. He managed this by leaning on a wall which was still wet with paint. Um, we were renovating a house in Fox Hills. Um, He wore the jacket everywhere, to the shops, to the movies, and to the beach. Everywhere, really. And I'd like to say thank you to all the people who have given and offered so many things. Um, The emergency services, too, who were there within 15 minutes, and also came to the wake to pay pay their respects during the past few days. I'd also like to say something which I have learned in the past week or so. I'd like to say that we should be grateful for your families. Cherish them. Be grateful, because they won't be there forever. So use up the time you have wisely. Also, be grateful for your life, because that too will not last forever. But be grateful, for you will be able to rest after your hard work. Be grateful that God has given us this life and all the things in it. Our families, our friends, our home, and this world that is awash with hope and love that God has given us. Thank you.
in a bit. Welcome back. Conspiracy theories. They seem to be everywhere. And in modern times, they seem to be really nasty. This week saw Alex Jones ordered to pay over $965 million over his claims that the 2012 shooting at the elementary school in Sandy Hook was a hoax. 20 children and 6 adults were shot dead at the school, but Jones claimed they were actors and all of this a trick to justify taking away people's guns. Claire spoke to Terry Sheridan, news director of WSHO Public Radio in Connecticut. Residents know, especially those who live in in Sandy Hook in the Newtown area, what a living hell it's been for the past 10 years because of what they feel is an invasion of people coming in trying to prove that the shooting never happened. People coming in uh, openly wearing firearms because they think that this was all staged, that the families were actors, the children never existed, and it was all a plot to take away their guns. It's hard for us looking at a distance to understand the influence of Infowars. This is the vehicle that Alex Jones used. But a very striking statistic that has emerged is the fact that one in 10 Americans trust him, Alex Jones. One in five believed his conspiracy theories about Sandy Hook. I know that is absolutely to me. I I, I covered the story uh, in part. To me, it's absolutely unbelievable. Uh, but the thing is, at least my opinion is, is the repeated. He was preaching to the choir, and just the repeated mentioning that this didn't happen, this didn't happen, this didn't happen, had an effect on those who wanted to believe that the government were were trying to take away guns. But as Claire pointed out. Alex Jones remained bullish and unrepentant. Well, Alex Jones had appeared before the court in Connecticut and he had admitted to being wrong about Sandy Hook, but that's all. He said it was a kangaroo court and that the plaintiff's lawyers were ambulance chasers and that his right to free speech was under attack. And even while that verdict was being delivered, he was broadcasting and looking for more money. Ain't going to be happening. Ain't no money. Now, remember, I'm in bankruptcy. We got two years of appeals. The money you donate does not go to these people. It goes to fight this fraud and it goes to stabilize the company. They want to shut down. That's why the, 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 the ambulance chasers did this, why they use these families. So save Infowars.com. We're fighting Goliath. We'll win because of you. Save Infowars.com. Infowarsstore.com. Double Patriot points, 10% off of 1776 right now at Infowars Store. But you see, you want somebody to fight for you? I'm doing it and you see what they do. The voice of Alex Jones as heard on the Claire Byrne Show. Shocking and offensive, but clearly striking a chord. So what does make a person believe certain conspiracy theories? And how can you sift the truth from the lies? With Ryan on Tuesday, a man with some insight. His name is Ross Frenet, and he's co-founder of a company called Moonshot, which tracks online extremism and offers a way out. There are very few people that are like the Joker in Batman or that are twiddling their moustache, actually, like Dr. Yeah. Evil. Yeah. Salafi jihadis, members of the, of the provisional IRA that have killed dozens and dozens of people, um, neo-Nazis. If you actually spend time with them, nearly always, um, they can spin a worldview where they're the goody 
and they're trying to do good in the world. And once you once you understand that, you can then start to figure out, okay, what is it that makes this person tick? And what is it that's appealing about these ideas? And this is the thing I don't think we talk about often enough, is that conspiracy te- theories are incredibly psychologically satisfying because they explain everything that's wrong with the world, everything that's wrong with your life, mm. and they give you a really simple way to solve all those problems. Mm. And that's incredibly appealing when such a complicated world. Um, so understanding that is the key to then preventing it and getting people out. So how then to talk to someone who believes theories that you believe to be totally outlandish? Well, common ground is key. Arguing directly doesn't help, either with conspiracy narratives or with... Um, or with uh, extremist beliefs, because a lot of, they, they will be prepared for attacks on the ideology. Um, but there's oftentimes underlying psychosocial needs that people have. So you, th- there's something in that person's life that means that they've chosen to latch on to this conspiracy or this uh, belief system that makes them the hero. And this is the point I was saying earlier, is a conspiracy theory is flattering because it says you you're yeah. clever. Yeah. And anyone who disagrees with you, they're just a sheep. And yes, that, that makes yes. you feel good. Um, and a lot of the time, if people's lives are going really well and if they don't have underlying issues, then that's less appealing. Whereas if you need to hear that you're the hero of your own story, um, then it can be very, very um, uh, uh, enticing. Um, and one of the things, I, I, I'm friends with a former neo-Nazi who pulls people out of um, neo-Nazi movements in Sweden. And he often talks about um, how he does this. So if he'd be talking to somebody about you know, neo-Nazism and all the rest of it, it he, he kind of says there's a weighing scales. So you can either attack the neo-Nazi side of the weighing scales because it's gone way out of whack. Or you can look at the other side of the weighing scales and talk about anything else, any of their other interests. So he'll spend ages with somebody and eventually they'll mention they like fishing. And then he'll just stop talking about white supremacy and be like, oh, talk to me about fishing. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Why are you interested in that? When's the last time you were fishing? When's the last time you managed to do that? And instead of focusing on attacking the ideas, which is where conspiracy theorists are kind of comfortable, right? Mm. Instead, try and bring people out by re-engaging them with other parts of their belief system, other parts of their life, other things they're connected with um, that, that, uh, that, that make them who they are. And that's Kind of, I think reassuring is the advice I would sometimes give to you know people who don't spend all their days thinking about conspiracy theories is you don't have to necessarily become an expert in the conspiracy theories because you're already an expert on the person you love. So focus on those elements and try and bring them back to you like that. Ross Frenish with Ryan. And a similar kind of conversation on Drive Time when Cormac spoke to former far-right extremist Matthew Collins who had become an anti-fascist activist and he had been a violent racist from a very early age and he believed it was possible the actions of his Irish father had sown that seed. When I was very young he left home with our babysitter who was a woman of colour and um, ever since then every time I do one of these interviews or any interview of any sort that becomes a central mm-hmm. you know, central, uh, central part of the discussion is that, is that the reason? And I, I grew up in South East London which I, some of your listeners will probably know on a council estate, there was four of us, uh, myself and three brothers, and our mum brought us up on our own. And, I, you know, it was we, we lived in poverty, not genteel poverty, you know, sort of council estate poverty, very, very real poverty. And I think there was that whole thing about um, trying to fit in, trying to be exceptionally English and 
also looking around me and seeing people who I didn't consider English or British, people of colour. And I b believed that those people I saw on, on the council estate or people that I went to school with were somehow stealing from me. They were robbing my English, my, my British identity. And I'm always very open about this. I think people generally sort of think people fall into extremism by accident, but I didn't. I genuinely hated people of colour. Those are very chilling words. And as he told Cormac from the age of 15 to 19, he was fully committed to fascism. For the minute I got involved with the far right, I was involved in violence. What type of attacks? From things like attacking lefty paper sellers, you know, communists selling their daily newspapers, people with petitions to save hospitals, Irish marches. The Irish community in, in particular was one that was uh, regularly targeted by the National Front and the BNP. Anything that challenged our worldview, anything that was to make life better. So, you know, you don't see racists and fascists. You don't see them out campaigning to keep a library open. You don't see them campaigning to keep a school open. And those sort of people, do-gooders, those people who care about communities, trade unionists, you know, are absolutely hated by racists. So they're the target. They, there, are, they are the target. Was there any group, Matthew, uh, who was not a target? No. Unless you, unless you are declared, there was a, there was an expression either with us or against us, and if you didn't declare for us, mm -hmm. you you were a victim. Yeah, you have to remember you know, the organisation that I was part of are not great thinkers; they're not great minds. So everything is against them. Every every issue, um, you could be discussing global warming or climate change. Everything just ends with someone must get beaten up because of this, and so that was the that was the life that was the life for me as a young teenage fascist. And he told Cormac about the incident that had forced him to question his beliefs. Well, people that go around screaming about their freedom of speech and their right to say and do things are generally people that would deny those things to others. The British National Party, the BNP, opened an office in Welling, South London, in 1989. And almost immediately, those do-gooders I was talking about, trade unionists, uh, people that want to keep libraries open, so on and so forth, held a meeting above a library... Um, to say, do we want a far-right group having an office and a bookshop in our community? And so we went along to this meeting and we said it was our right to have freedom of speech and then we got inside the meeting and began to violently assault everybody. In it. And I, you know, again, it was on the walk-in last night. That was not over-exaggerated. That involved smashing chairs on people's heads, dragging them out, beating them up, people jumping through the windows of, of the library, uh, Asian woman who was pregnant being locked in the toilet so she couldn't be assaulted, and then someone pulling a hammer out and trying to smash their way in to get at them, 17 people hospitalised. And it was in the course of this, watching this unfold, I just thought to myself, oh. During the attack? During the attack, I watched it and I just thought, this ain't working. I, this is ridiculous. While this you were hitting people? Well, I, I well, I stopped halfway through, and because they just wouldn't want to left the hit. Mm. Can you remember the moment when you stopped? I think once I looked around and everybody was already beaten and coward and hiding and crying and screaming in terror, and then I looked at that, and before I could even compute what I'd seen and what I'd done, uh, the people I were with just kept going, just kept going and going, dragging them back up to to continue the assault. And I just thought this isn't working. This for me, this doesn't work. This isn't this isn't right. It began then. I think a, a transformation or a little light went on in my tiny head, 
in my tiny brain and I thought, I don't need to be here. I don't need to be with these people. These people are dangerous. And what did you feel at the moment? Was it shame or was it... Shame, disgust, terror, fear. Once you get involved with groups like these, your friends drop you. So these are the only friends I've got and look at them kicking old ladies in the head. It was then that he contacted an anti-fascist organisation and began working for them, passing them information on his former friends. So you were a mole. I was a mole. I was a, yeah, a mole, a walking. And, yeah. and uh, were you not in danger then? I think so, yeah, because like I said, these, you know, if they would do that to people they didn't know or care for, imagine what they would do if they'd have found me. Mm-hmm. But I played the other side and I, I played it beautifully. Indeed he did, but at huge personal cost. He has received hundreds of death threats and went into exile in Australia for 10 years. But his involvement with the far right in the UK was in the late 80s, early 90s. How different a landscape is it today? Do you think that the far right extremism in the UK is better or worse? Worse. Far worse. Now, far worse. What do you put that down to? 2009, they got a million votes. The, the far right, a neo-Nazi party that wanted to deport millions of British people based on their colour, got a million votes. A million people voted for them. 2010, they were wiped out across the board. They, as they do when they, when they, they lose their elections, they say there was a massive Jewish conspiracy against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, this electoral business is nonsense. They don't believe they can come to power by standing in elections anyway. And a new ideology swept through that the electoral politics was a waste of time and we need to do a, a new radicalisation. And that, in 2013, that reared its head in an organisation called National Action. It is absolutely frightening that the way you have described your ideology as a teenager, your actions, yeah. and you say it's worse now, possibly worse. more... Poten- more and the, the potential for murder and terrorism is far greater. One in five people arrested for terrorism in the UK now are extreme far-right. A frightening statistic. Matthew Collins with Cormac on Drive Time and that extraordinary insight into the making of a fascist. Back in a bit. Welcome back. The conversation had started last week and it continued into this one. Women talking to Joe on Liveline about how a condition called endometriosis had dominated their lives and how in so many instances they had been failed by the medical establishment. Here is Ruth Ann Cunningham. Chronic pain every day. Chronic pain every day. Like the worst pain, like I felt like I was being punched in the ovaries while barbed wire was ripping my insides apart, being stabbed in the back. I would sometimes scream with the pain. Um, it was just absolutely horrendous. And were you, were you ever in the situation with so many women have talked about that they weren't believed and the, but they, they were, suggestions were made that the pain is in the head. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think people, when they see you look fine on the outside, they just assume you're being dramatic. Or it's like, well, it's period pain. Like, get over it. It's just your period. Or, you know, it's that whole thing of just doctors. The other thing about endometriosis is it's really hard to diagnose. Yeah. So a lot of doctors want to search for everything else first. So I was kind of, oh, it could be that, but let's look for hip problems. Let's look for, you know, let's look for everything else but that. And a lot of the times when I would collapse, you know, at the gym or have to go to hospital, I was handed painkillers and sent home and said, look, everything's fine. You're fine. You know, here's some painkillers when really I was battling a horrific disease that then 
after a four hour surgery, which I had to have in the UK with a private endometriosis specialist, you know, it was all over me. I had the worst kind stage four deep infiltrating endometriosis of the bowel, pelvis and bladder. And he said to me, if you'd left this any longer, you would have lost your bladder or sorry, my bowel, not my bladder. So I, you know, and I had to go to the UK to get the treatment that I needed. And as many will know, Ruth Ann is a Grammy nominated singer songwriter who works with some of the biggest names in music. But this had stopped her in her tracks. How did it affect your performing life, Ruth Ann? Oh, God. It, it, I mean, I missed so many opportunities the years where I was suffering in pain. I remember vividly one day being in L.A., meant to be riding with John Legend, and oh I couldn't couldn't get up off the floor um, to do the session, and I had to cancel it. So oh, it was wow. just really disappointing um, to have to cancel, you know, with such a big star like that. Wow. And I lost that opportunity. And, and you know, I, I, I remember a session I was working with Niall Horan, we wrote nice to meet you and we were jumping around and he mm-hmm. had no idea because I, I wasn't going to tell him. But he said to me, well, I will finish early today. And I was so delighted because I felt like passing out the entire session. I was trying to put on a brave face, smile, write the song. And then, you know, I, I pulled through that day. But then there was other days that I missed massive opportunities. And after I had the wide excision surgery in the UK, I got my quality of life back. And there were so many stories from women telling of pain and misdiagnosis. Here is Mickey. The way I would describe the pain is that the endo is very sticky and it sticks my various organs together. And then when I have a cramp, it feels like they are being ripped apart. So it literally feels like there is a white hot pain and someone is trying to tear them apart. And you say there's no joined up thinking in women's health care in Ireland. No, I mean, I was first, I first went to see a doctor when I was, I think, 14 or 15. I remember going into the rotunda for a scan and being told that they couldn't see anything on the scan. They couldn't figure out why my periods were so sore and that they would probably just even out as I got older. And then as I got older, they didn't. And I went to see another specialist, again, privately, mm-hmm. um, who told me that I had polycystic ovarian syndrome and put me on the pill. And I reacted really badly to the pill. I had stay periods like constantly for, I think it was like 12 weeks. It just okay. didn't let up. And... For the whole of my 20s, it was just misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis. And at one point, I was in, I was living in New York at the time, and I went to see a specialist who told me that I was going into menopause at 22, and that if I ever wanted to have children, I would have to freeze my eggs immediately. Mm-hmm. And I cannot tell you how much money has been spent trying to figure out what was wrong. And the only way... I have been able to get access to treatment is because my parents have provided me with that. Bavin phoned in and for her, endometriosis and the lack of quality care had robbed her of so much. The idea that this is a menstrual issue isn't 100% true either. As Amy said and many women have said, it's a full body disease. It doesn't necessarily present as cycle related. So for me, it was all bowel, musculoskeletal, inability to walk, neck, couldn't move my neck. The, the, the day I woke up um, after a five-hour surgery, including hysterectomy, 
including huge excision of endometriosis of almost every mm-hmm. um, organ underneath my pelvic bowl, so colon, rectum, bladder, bowel. I moved my neck to the side for the first day in about a decade. Just moved my neck to the side. I hadn't done that. I've lost my childbearing years. Yeah. I've lost my make money years. I've lost my buy a house years. I lost it all. So it's lovely to hear of women saying, you know, I had my baby, I've had my miracle baby, all the rest. I don't even think I want kids, but now I have this journey of trying to figure out, was that because I was so ill that the concept of parenting was just not realistic? It was like, whoa, that would be so hard and stressful and impossible. Or was it actually something, if I had been looked after by the medical system, I would have had a maternal instinct I would have wanted to have kids it would have been something that was actually possible imaginable but it was unimaginable Maria is in her 70s and she spoke about being forced to accept this cycle of pain as simply a woman's lot you've been enduring this pain for over five decades yes but it becomes your way of life. And the thing is, Joe, you are so relieved when you're not in pain yeah. or the pain is eased. Yeah. You are so relieved. You will remember in the past we used to say, be thankful for small More mercies. mercies yeah. Be thankful for those. And one really embraces that. One embraces that. Okay. To be thankful for these moments that it's... you're not in pain and that you can manage. The voices of just some of the women who contacted Liveline this week. Now the triumph of the Irish women's soccer team has been overshadowed somewhat by that song. We will get to it. But let us start with the triumph. Well, here's the chance, Amber Yeah, Barrett. great ball from Denise O'Sullivan to pick out Amber Barrett. And she's in on goal inside the area. Oh, oh she's done it. What a goal for Ireland. Off the bench. And she has given Ireland the lead at Hampden Park. Superbly picked out by Denise O'Sullivan. And what a calm, cool finish by Amber Barrett. Scotland nil, Ireland won. Oh, it's absolutely unbelievable finish by Amber Barrett. In, down that inside left channel, a brilliant pass by Denise O'Sullivan. And as she's running through, what a finish. But I'm actually a little bit emotional as well, Adrian, because Amber Barrett, we know where she hails from. She bent down and she's touching the armband, the black armband. A brilliant moment, but unbelievable. And it's a Donegal woman who has come up trumps for Ireland. What a superb goal. Amber Barrett with the goal to take the Irish women to the World Cup. Just off the pitch, she spoke to Tony O'Donoghue. That was the longest 20 minutes of my life, I won't lie to you, when that goal went in. I kept checking the clock every 30 seconds and it seemed like 10 seconds were going, but I've said it 100 times since the game finished. I do not know what we've just done. I cannot believe it. But seeing... The people that have travelled here, seeing the people at home that are watching, the people that have turned out to watch all of our games. This is for every single one of them. This is for all the young kids growing up. Now they have something to dream for and I'm so happy to be part of this team. And you're such a proud Donegal woman as well and I know the tragedy in Cresslaw obviously affected you as it did the whole country and you clearly dedicated your goal to those people that we lost tragically. Yeah, like I know Chrysler like the back of my hand. My both my grandparents were were Chrysler born and bred, and I know people that died in the tragedy. I know people who were affected by the tragedy. I've not been able to put into words about it. I've, there's been like a somber somberness about me the last few days that I think, you know, this is the best day of my life in terms of what we've done for football. But you know, when you put it into perspective, like we don't scratch the surface of what happened over there on Friday, and 
I'm just this this result, this game, that goal, this award. I'm dedicating it for those ten beautiful souls who unfortunately perished on Friday, for all their families because I know they touched their lives. They certainly touched ours, and this is for Crisa. This is for Donegal. And on Morning Ireland, Audrey's intro was a salutary reminder of just how far they had come. Five years ago, they didn't have their own tracksuits. They had to change in airport toilets. This morning, they are preparing to compete in the World Cup, the first time the Republic has qualified for a soccer World Cup in 20 years and the first time ever for the women's team. And all of that is still true. However, as we now know, the joy at that win has been tempered by the singing in the locker room. Ooh, ah, up, vira? I'm afraid not. An apology from the FAI issued and then this from national manager Vera Pau. We're sincerely deeply sorry for, for what happened. And it doesn't matter if the players meant anything or not because they didn't mean anything with it. Because if the, it's the celebrations and, 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 and that, that then occurs. But that doesn't mean that they should not be uh, not realising what they are doing. And it's also not to put it on social media or not. Um, if it's in a private room, it should not happen either. A contrite Vera Pau. But the controversy continues and on Thursday, UEFA opened a disciplinary investigation against the FAI. On Drive Time, Gavin Cooney from the 42.ie joined Sarah. I mean, in terms of punishments, I'd be shocked if there was anything too punitive. The most likely punishment is probably a fine of some kind, like a low five-figure fine maybe. And then what a UEFA will often do is add and we remind the players of their responsibilities. Okay, so that may be the direction we're going, hopefully, because I think everyone is is sad to see that such a cloud has been cast over what was such a brilliant achievement. Um... Meanwhile, the Wolf Tones Celtic Symphony topped the Irish iTunes chart. Well, after all of that, let us lower the tone and just get a little bit gossipy. Brenda Inferay brought us this listener dilemma. I made a stupid mistake this summer. This is the email. I went on a stag and kissed a woman in a nightclub. I don't know why I did it. I have no excuses. I was flattered by the attention she paid me. And when she made a move, I reciprocated. Thankfully, I came to my senses and stopped uh, what was happening. But it was described as a passionate, prolonged moment. So I don't know how quickly he came to his senses there. <laughs> uh, I'm racked with guilt. Uh, when I left to go back to the hotel on my way home, made the decision to tell my wife the truth. She's understandably devastated and angry. And I've been sleeping in the spare room, which is about two months now. Things are very frosty between us. There's been no intimacy at all, which again, I understand. I don't know if or when things will improve between us. I miss her so much, even though we're living across the hallway from each other I suggest counselling but she said she's still too angry and won't be ready can't live like this forever and I can't spend my life apologising is there a way out is there anything else I can do to bring back the trust (gasps) what to do foolish man regrets I've had a few you're a resident agony everything's Ray and Alison you can't dictate how someone feels so his wife is very angry She's setting a boundary with him at the moment and um, I'd say in time she may do counselling but she's saying I am too angry at the moment and it sounds like he's getting impatient with that. As he said, it was an interesting line. It was a passionate, long... Yeah. Like, what does that mean? Kind of, I know. You know. Well, he obviously remembers it, clearly. Yeah. 
And I hear what he's saying, you know, he liked the attention and everything, but I just think what's really important in relationships is what what are the boundaries? And he knew that that was a boundary he couldn't actually cross. Um, so therefore, a betrayal has actually occurred. I think a bit of patience on his side is is required as well, but I know Ray does not agree with me. <laughs> Raymond? No, turned out he did mostly agree with Alison, although he had some praise for this man. Mm. In fairness, he could have got away with this one, potentially. He didn't have to tell her. It's a no. risky one to do. But some, I can see the girls and they're looking at me and someone's going to get going to throw across the room at me. But I suppose one of the things I will give this person kudos for, um, for stepping up because so many other men wouldn't step up. They wouldn't either see that there was a problem, which is the worst, or that they would just kind of hope to get away with it. I think that's part of what is happening for the wife is she's humiliated as well as hurt because you were there with a stag I'm going to presume with friends and Mm, relations mm. and other people this wasn't a private moment it was a public moment Mm. and so possibly that's why he had to come clean so I'm contradicting myself in this and when he said that thing about um, you know I don't know why I did it I'm sorry that's not good enough no that is not good enough because then it's like if you don't well, know why you did it. he didn't say I was drunk and I did it. I mean he's actually yeah. he's not using that as a, no, an excuse. No, he's not. No. How do you rebuild the trust? So for example if he goes to go mm-hmm. away again with work mm-hmm. you know what is she going to be thinking? Does she say well you know what he's done and I'll do it. You know it just opens up so many the trust is such challenges a, such for a them. huge like you know it's a great easy thing to say but I always think of it like a glass you know once it's broken it's broken it's yeah. broken I do think repair can occur um, and it sounds like you know I, I do think there's hope in this but patience is definitely needed what a price to pay for the schnog with Ryan words and not just any old words no we're talking fancy pants ones marmalade not jam Countdown's Susie Dent has just compiled an emotional dictionary. Words for those awkward situations when a grimace just won't cut it. And if you're getting the hair done later, well, hopefully you won't need this. Is it called agiotori or agiotori? Agiotori, yes, that's the Japanese, yes. Um, And that, uh, I think we've all felt it, no matter how much we love our hairdresser, I think we've all looked in the mirror and they're sort of happily brandishing the mirror and showing you the back of your hair thinking, do you like it? And you just say, yes, it's lovely, Uh, even when you're dying a bit inside. So the Japanese do have a term for, yes, exiting the hairdresser looking far worse than when you went in. Ooh, let's hope not. But amazing to think that there is a word out there for that. And then Ryan and Susie had a love-in for this particular word. Confelicity. I'm sorry, excuse me? Confelicity. Take it away, Susie. Oh, it's just so beautiful. And you know what? It hasn't actually even made it into standard historical dictionaries. It's just been sort of floating around and and sort of uncaptured. And I would just love uh, to share this a bit. So, um, yes, confelicity, exactly as you say, it's that, you know, joy in someone else's happiness. So being filled with happiness on uh, in a completely sort of I suppose you're invested, but not in a selfish way. Um, And it is just that radiated joy that bounces off you as well. And it is I, I think in the book I sort of say it's the near opposite of um, you know the famous Schadenfreude from Germany yes. which is joy in someone else's misfortune um, this is is joy in in yes someone else's joy and that that's just such a lovely thing oh such a lovely thing indeed but if you are sitting there maybe not quite so benevolent this morning yeah don't worry here's one for you 
a well-wooder and as opposed to a well-wisher, somebody who wishes you well yeah. unconditionally. A well-wooder is somebody who wishes you good luck as long as it's not more luck than they have. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I was delighted I like to find that. a word for that. Yeah. <laughs> that is the one. Well, that's it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. Thank you.